and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. This two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, November 28th, we are studying 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. In today's text, St. Paul addresses questions that the Corinthians had brought to his attention concerning marriage. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jason Casper. Pastor Casper serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. Pastor Casper, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks for having me, Pastor Apple. It's always a pleasure to sit and talk with you about the Scriptures. So we get to talk about the first part of 1 Corinthians 7 today, Pastor Casper. Help us out with any context, anything we should know about this epistle as we prepare to look at this section. Yeah, the Corinthian epistle, especially 1 Corinthians, is wonderful stuff. It is. Uh, it seems to us to be a pretty troubled congregation with a lot of struggles within themselves in various ways, and that's good. This is this is like the like the confession we get from the creeds. We get the creeds because somebody did, did something wrong, and we had to speak contrary to that in order to address the Christian faith and speak it correctly. Here, in the case of the Corinthian congregation, we get we get a congregation that has trouble giving Paul the opportunity to speak in the scriptures and teach us an awful lot about the things that they were struggling with, which is it's far less significant that they had the various troubles they have. Rather, it's more significant that we get this instruction that is imminently applicable. In the case of today's text, the marriage text, oh my goodness, this is wonderful stuff. The sixth commandment is very simple. You shall not commit adultery, and yet we have an awful lot of trouble with that. The Corinthians apparently had trouble with that. Our society struggles immensely with that, and we have a little bit broader teaching and understanding here from Paul in the first in the beginning of chapter 7 about marriage. It's also cool because it comes right after the exhortation about, uh, about sexual immorality. So the first, the first setup is, don't do all these weird things, and hi, hey, by the way, this is what you ought to do and where you ought to do it in marriage. That's the right place to do it. And so here is how you ought to engage yourself in marriage. This is what husband and wife are supposed to be like. Yeah, this is one of those places in the scriptures where we do find out more details about God's intention for marriage than are given in, in some other places. What are some of those other texts in the scriptures? You mentioned the Sixth Commandment already. Uh, what are some other places in the scriptures that we need to keep in our minds when we think about God's gift of marriage? So uh, we, we really ought to always ought to have creation in mind. That is, that's the first place we get marriage, What is what it is to be man and wife, that man and wife are help meets for one another. It is not suitable for the man to be alone. So what does what does the Lord do? He creates flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, the rib taken out of man who who is made into woman and presented to him as a as a partner for him. These two then in conjunction together, failing together in marriage, also then fall into sin and fall away from from the from the command and to them together is given the promise of what's coming in the seed of the woman. So this whole this whole idea that we are husband and wife intended to function together as as pieces of an incomplete thing it's almost that's kind of the way we want to we want to think about marriage we want to talk about marriage 
that the man is not is not good to be left alone. The woman is not good to be left alone. The two ought to be together. And the rearing of children and the consolation of the two together in marriage and the upbuilding and the, and the backfilling, that's one of those things that, again, our society loses track of. Creation gives us this good idea that we are not suitable on our own to do the things that we need to do. It is, it is necessary for there to be someone else there that's the other part of it. There's, there are things that men are more competent at, and there are things that women are more competent at, and generally men are not good at the things women are good at, and generally women are not good at the things men are good at. And gender distinction actually does make a difference, and it really does matter. This is one of those arrows. One of those arrows. One of those areas. I was already skipping ahead to the Psalms. We hear about how the, the sons of a man are like a quiver full of arrows, and that the, the, the bearing and the rearing of children, this is the whole purpose and function of, of marriage and life together as husband and wife, that we are promoting and building family and producing children to, pro- to propagate the world and to propagate the church and to, and to fulfill this command to be fruitful and, and multiply and spread out over all, over, over all of the earth. Just a couple of places. There are many, many more spots where marriage comes out throughout the scriptures, too. Sure. And, and one of the beautiful things about this text as well is that we will also hear about the goodness of the one who has the gift of remaining single, the one who has the gift of remaining chaste, Paul will also hold up that up as a, a good thing, so that the the two gifts, both chastity and marriage, are good gifts of God to be received with thanksgiving, and they both have their benefits and shouldn't be played against each other. But they're they're both to receive be received with thanksgiving. Indeed, yeah, and the chastity one is one of those one of those great ones that it, it's given, but it's not given to all. And it's a good thing. I wish everyone could be like me, we're going to hear Paul say. But not everybody gets this. This is, this is for, we, could, we can assume probably behind the text that there is a select few that are given to this chastity gift. Not everybody is, is given that way. Most of us are probably not given to that. And so that's, that's another thing about marriage. Marriage is suitable for most folks. If you're the one that's given to chastity, it's not something you necessarily pursue. I'm going to go be a chaste person. It's just not in your desire set to be something else. Chastity is just kind of who you are. Yeah. Now, now we we should we should clarify that we're using the word chastity here very specifically to indicate a, a life of celibacy, a life of of singleness. Uh, everyone should pursue a chaste and decent life, as the Catechism reminds us. Right. Yeah. Not not to not to authorize something else. The the chastity as opposed to marriage. <laughs> Marriage that's would be right. different than this thing. <laughs> right. In this case, that's, that's the specific way we're using that word, just so that we're clear. So with those thoughts in mind, uh, let's dig in to the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're beginning at the first verse this morning. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control." Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, 
one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. That's our text for today. That's 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 to 24. Well, Pastor Casper, in the first verse of our text, we have, again, evidence of the correspondence that's been happening between Paul and this Corinthian congregation. And I've asked previous guests if they have a copy of this letter, because I'd love to see it. You don't happen to have a copy, do you? <laughs> No, I, I've I've heard somebody had one, but it was lost. You know, who knows who knows where it went. No, we have we have we have evidence in in the Corinthian text. We don't we don't get to have the original ah. source material that he's referring to in order to talk back. But I mean, that is again, that's not necessarily to our shame or to our benefit that this thing it doesn't exist. What we have is we have the answers, and we can infer what some of the questions probably were. It sure. sounds an awful lot like, hey. There's some weirdness going on here about, you know, being married or staying married or, you know, divorce and not divorce. What do, what do you think we ought to do about this? Yeah, and so that's the right. answer and is I, nice and broad. Yeah, and what I, I appreciate what you said earlier about the fact that, yes, the Corinthians do seem to be a pretty troubled congregation, but that's okay because it gives opportunity for them to ask questions like this so that we have the apostolic answer here in the Word of God, for which we should give thanks— this is perhaps a reminder to don't don't be afraid to ask questions in your pastor's Bible study, because there's a good chance you're not the only one that has that question, and other people would benefit from the answer, too. And certainly that's Indeed. the case here in 1 Corinthians 7. Yeah, it would, it, what a great thing that is. The, the, the questions that we get are, it's, it's, it's just wonderful stuff. It's, it, it is good for a man not to be sexually active. He's going to start that way and he'll, and he'll come back around to it towards the end. But that's, that's the beginning of this whole discussion. It's actually, it's actually better for you not to do this. 
However, well, if- let me, before you before you go too far on that, Pastor Casper, I, I've got a question for you, and this is one of those things where the fact that the Greek text does not have punctuation can can maybe cause some question here. So, uh, verse one, right. as it reads says this, and of course I'm reading so you can't see punctuation in what I'm reading. This is what the text says. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So that's that's the text as it reads. And and actually, I had this experience myself, because in preparation for our conversation, I've been listening to this text as I was driving here and there. And so I was hearing this, yep. and as I was hearing it, I was hearing it as if the statement, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, was Paul's own statement. The editors of the ESV, and I imagine other English translations as well, not all of them, Make, perhaps, it, make it look like others. a quote, yeah. Yeah, so they, they take it as a quote. So which, which do you think, Pastor Casper, is this something that Paul is giving instruction in, or is he quoting what they asked him about, and then he's responding? That you know, we could really go either way with that. Um, I think I think the editors did a decent job of of speculating that this was him quoting back what they had said in their question, as if to say, it, it, let's 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 imagine the context there, like someone saying, "Hey, I'm celibate. I think everybody else should be too. Don't you think so?" Mm. Yeah. And the response is, eh, "It is good to be celibate." However, <laughs> that's yeah. not given to everybody. Right, and, and so it, I, I it think seems... it, I'm I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, Pastor Casper. Oh, that's all right. It, it seems it seems reasonable that the that the the framework is is because this is this is the pastoral method. When someone comes to you with a question that's a little challenging, a little off the wall, and you don't want to you don't want to make them feel foolish for asking the question the way they did, you start off by by saying, "Yeah, I can understand why you would think X, Y, or Z," and here's another thing you have maybe hadn't thought about. That that could be the way Paul's going with this answer. That he's he's giving them giving them the yeah. That's that's certainly reasonable. But here's the other thing, right? And I think in this particular case, at least, whether it's a quotation and he's answering something that they had given to him, or it's his own teaching, I think in either case it can work for this instance because he will hold up the goodness of the celibate life, as we've talked about, and he's also going to hold up the goodness of marriage. And so in in either case, whether you take the second part of verse 1 as a quotation or not, I think the key is to hold it in very tight context with what he says next in verse 2. This is one of those very good examples where you don't want to just rip one sentence out of context and run with it as if that's all that is said here. So with that in mind, Pastor Casper, take us into the context. The The statement, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, what does he say after that? So uh, I can do all things through a verse, I can do through a verse taken out of context, right? So, <laughs> but because the temptations of to, to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That's wonderful. So it is it is good and acceptable and okay. And 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 like me, we're gonna hear later, you you could or should be celibate. But if it's not given to you to be celibate, if you have this inclination that is not celibacy, and that's kind of what I was getting at when we talked about it a second ago, 
the idea that that if you are one that's given to this solo lifestyle and the solo lifestyle is a, oh, it's a horrible word. I can't believe that's fallen into my vocabulary. If you're given to this celibate, celibate life, <laughs> then there it will go. just fit perfectly with you. But if it's not, if that's not the life that's given to you, if a vocation different than that is what's given to you, then here is the place it fits. It fits every man with his wife, every woman with her husband, not somewhere else, not someone else, just the two of you and just within the framework of marriage. And that's where it ought to be. That's where it dwells. That's the right place for it. That's the other end of this. Celibate is one thing, sexually active in the right context, not committing adultery. That's the other thing. And those yeah. two things are really, that's all he's going to, that's all he's going to allow us as far as, as far as the definitions of what's suitable for Christians to do. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So you see the, the goodness of marriage here throughout this text as, a, again, a good gift of God. And in this case, a, a purpose for marriage that guards against the temptation to sexual immorality, which sometimes this is a, a purpose for marriage that we don't always think about. And it's, it's not that the other purposes are—I mean, the other purposes are there. So marriage is given by God so that a husband and wife would help each other and support each other, so that they would find delight in each other, so that they would uh, bring children into the world. And those, those three purposes are, are mentioned in the pastoral address during the rite of holy matrimony. This one shows up, I suppose, in the, the part where it says that a, a couple, they should not take a spouse in lust. Uh, so it's there, but— this is something maybe we forget about. If if you are burning with this kind of lust and desire, then the proper place for that desire for a, a man or a woman, depending on who you are, that's in marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the appropriate use of of, of sexuality is is there, and it, and yeah. it is that that's one of those things where um, as, as Christians we kind of struggle with how to how to manage this because we're sort of we shy away from having from having the the sexuality of marriage being a part of the central focus of it, but it really is. It is a central part of it. The distinction, though, as we're going to hear soon, is whose body belongs to whom, and that really is the thing. The burning of the of the the good lust and the bad lust, if we can talk about it that way, that it is suitable for for the lust in marriage to be for your spouse and for in your spouse for you. That that is the good form, and in the in the negative connotation, which is the, the the extramarital way, even within the context of marriage, that this this desire for something for me, yeah, that's not what marriage is. Yeah, that's, that's a right. very distinct and different application of it. Yeah, yeah, that's right, and, and so that's, that, that's probably that's, we, we well we probably wouldn't use the word lust to talk about the the desire for a for a, that a husband has for his wife. Or that a wife has for her husband, we would we would use desire uh, because because that word lust just has those strong connotations that probably wouldn't use that within the context sure. of marriage. Yeah, and I and I and generally I wouldn't. I'm only, I'm using it here because Paul did. But <laughs> but you know. that's you're right. That's that's it. It it sounds weird. It sounds uncomfortable because it is because for us. In, in catechetical Christianity, learning the sixth commandment the way we do as children and, and parents and everyone else, we learn that lust is bad, and it's probably suitable to just say, hey, let's let's isolate that word for the bad stuff. That's the not good stuff. Desire is the good stuff, and we'll just use different words for the two of them because they really are very different and distinct from each other. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, just, just trying to keep our language clear to avoid as, as much confusion as possible. 
on on a topic <laughs> in which our world is very confused, as as you well know. Indeed. Yeah. Well, and, so, and okay. yeah, Go and we're going to be we're going to be talking about the the plain Jane normal vanilla idea of marriage, and there are so many peculiar things that have come up recently, none of which fit anywhere in this context. All of that is completely right out, as we would say in Muddy Python language. There isn't there isn't a thing that fits other than these things. These things That's right. this is it. There isn't something else. Yeah. And and you have this just wonderfully simple definition of marriage that he gives in verse two. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So a marriage is a lifelong union between one man and one woman. And there you have it. There's Anything outside of that Indeed. is not part of God's definition. Well, and that answers that sort of does answer the question because this sometimes comes up, not very often, mind you, but on rare occasions it comes up. Well, what about the plural marriage in the Old Testament? Plural marriage is there are examples of this in the Old Testament. We do see it. There are two good things to remember. One is Paul gives us some clear, clear instruction here: each man his own wife, each woman her own husband. That tells us really what we ought to be doing as a primary example. The other is, in every situation of plural marriage, there is always something really bad that comes primarily as a result of the more than one spouse thing. Yeah. That's a that's a genera- that's a, a cause of great consternation and trouble, battle between the, the progeny for generations to come, and it, it, you can track it all right back to, hey, maybe if uh, Abraham just had the one wife, there would be less of this. Yeah, that's right. And and you can think about the way that Jesus addresses the Pharisees on the topic of divorce, where he talks about the things that Moses allowed because of hardness of heart. And I think that's the way we need to understand the cases of, of multiple marriages in the Old Testament. The Lord allows these things because of hardness of heart, but that does not mean that that's his intention. His intention is very clearly expressed by the Apostle Paul here. Indeed. Yeah, yeah in, in a great and clear language. It's wonderful yeah. stuff. It really is. The that's the right. authority, if you don't mind, I want to pivot into the authority of that because that's this is this is such good stuff. Once we we've got who is who is it to be husband and wife, wife and husband, those just one of each, those two linked together. And then the wife does not have authority over her husband, but the husband does. Unless we shriek in terror in hearing that, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. And this is that distinction between desire and that other thing. The desire is the desire to serve your spouse in a physical way, which is different than the desire to be served, the desire to have and to receive. Those are, those are very different ideas. And so the notion that, that each is, is a servant to each other, which is really kind of cool in the way Paul has laid this out, because we end this whole section talking about servitude and slavery, which is not unlike what marriage is. There is a servitude and slavery interaction between us as husband and wife to each other in that when we're doing marriage right, the husband is the servant of his wife and the wife is the servant of her husband. And those two things together actually make marriage functional and appropriate and good and beneficial for for husband and wife together. Yeah. And this is where you do see the good and godly place for desire between a husband and a wife. Here's I, I looked up the language from the pastoral address in the marriage right Marriage was Mm -hmm. ordained so that man and woman may find delight in one another. Therefore, all persons who marry shall take a spouse in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, for God has not called us to impurity but in holiness. So we don't, as husbands and wives, there is not the lust between the two of them. 
which would be a desire that seeks to fulfill selfish purposes, but rather there is this desire that exists between husband and wife for the sake of the other person, that within the marital union, that union is given by God for the mutual service of each other, rather than in the selfish taking of something on, on the part of either either husband or wife, which is just a, a completely different way of thinking about marriage and the marital union compared to the way our world would have us think about it. Yeah, in the in the 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 world we, in which we live, and in, this is this is the physical side of things, but we can always we can extrapolate this out to the rest of the context of what marriage is. All of the things we're having, the struggles with marital breakdown and divorce, the struggles with custody issues, the struggles with with I want children, I don't want children, all those various issues, every one of them boils down to the same thing, and that is the the difference in the approach and understanding of what marriage is supposed to be. That marriage is supposed to be a desire to to serve and to benefit your spouse in the best way you can as as husband or wife to them. And that is that's where it all falls apart. If we're going to decide we're unhappy in marriage. I mean that's that is that's one of the most tragic things about our, our society we've inherited from the twentieth century that that the, the 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 this this union that no man should should break asunder, we can dissolve this just because I'm just not happy anymore. Or I just don't, I don't have this desire anymore. That's the complete opposite of what marriage is. Marriage is a desire to serve your spouse. And my own personal happiness is actually drawn from the fulfillment that, that my spouse receives. That's how that, that reciprocal thing goes. When I'm sitting here looking entirely into myself and staring at my own navel, of course, I'm going to find that I'm unhappy because ultimately left to myself in, inside my own mind, I'm going to be unhappy and I'm going to find disillusionment inside marriage. I'm going to find disillusionment everywhere in life. And whoa, the problem is this marriage. We need to get out of this because that's really, that's going to fix everything. I'm going to be happy tomorrow because of that. Yeah. And, and of course, in reality, when we go against what God has given in marriage in that way, then we don't find that the grass is greener on the other side. In fact, we find it to be much worse are always better for us to keep in mind what God has said, to use his gifts with thanksgiving and joy. And so it goes for marriage, to receive the, the gift of marriage as a husband and a wife. The husband does not have authority over his body. The wife does. The wife does not have authority over her body. The husband does. And together in that marital union, they serve one another in holiness and honor, using the gift that God has given in great joy. And we're going to keep discussing the joys of marriage and more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Jason Casper this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. 
LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, November 28th. We're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 24 with Pastor Jason Casper. He serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. Pastor Casper, prior to the break, we were discussing the goodness of marriage. From the first several verses of this text, Paul continues to meditate upon this and extol the benefits of marriage to the people of Corinth. In verse 5, in speaking about the marital union, he says, Do not deprive one another. So it is good for husband and wife to join together in the marriage bed in that holiness and honor. But there may be a time in which they might abstain. Talk about what he says about abstinence from the marital union by a husband and wife, and then the coming back together again. Yeah. Abstinence, it's great because he he speaks about both as a a unified decision that we together should choose not to do this for a period of time. And this is, uh, if you were to talk about natural family planning, this is not a suitable time for us to have a child. So we're going to abstain for a period of time until it's a, until it's a suitable time for this to happen. It should not be for the rest of your marriage. It should be for a period of time that this is a, a thing that we agree to and that we agree to rejoin together because this, this physical union is part of marriage. And if we keep this from if we keep this from ourselves, what's going to happen? Why is what's part of the reason we're in marriage in the first place? We have this passion, this desire that wants to go find an outlet. If I deprive myself of the outlet, we might have trouble down the road. And so let's not do that. Let's instead stay together. What's also very important about about how this talks is is the inter, the relation between men and women. And it and granted, it's probably more likely to go one direction than the other, but it does go both directions. And that is the withholding from your spouse in a non-agreed upon way that this, I'm going to punish my spouse by not doing this, this activity. That's not what we're supposed to be doing in marriage. We ought to be talking about other things in other ways, rather than using this, this really blessed union of us in, in one flesh union and using that as a cudgel to beat one another over the head or to, or to, to pry the proper response of what we're looking for in some other activity by using this as a device to, to punish. That's really not what it's for. It is, it is for the, the edification of husband and wife, not for the punishment of husband and wife. And so that's why I think he's talking re- very clearly about this in, in a mutual decision that, that husband and wife should together decide to abstain, that husband and wife should come together by mutual agreement again afterwards. And that prayer be a big part of the time in between that we're, we're staying central on, on the notion that God has given us this gift in marriage and that the things we receive here are for us, for our benefit by God's grace and gift to us in this place. He wants us to be happy in marriage together. He wants us to be together in this way. And, and we shouldn't try to deviate from what the Lord has given us. Yeah, absolutely. So with those first five verses, Paul very clearly lays out a foundation for the goodness of marriage. To those who have the temptation to sexual immorality, marriage is the place that God 
puts sexual morality. This is the place where he gives one man and one woman to live together in this blessed union, serving one another to the delight and support of each other, still centered in his gift of prayer. It's a beautiful picture that he sets for us here in those first five verses. As he continues then in this chapter, he draws more implications and gives other instructions concerning other ways that this gift plays itself out in our lives. Uh, so in verse 6 then, he says, not as a, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. I think referring to his own celibacy. Paul is an unmarried man. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Uh, how does, what's Paul saying here? Paul's he's getting back to that initial statement that it is it is good to be celibate that one of the options that's that's on the table for you is to remain apart from and not have a spouse and he's giving this as a pivot point here I think this is useful and good too for the widow for the widower when we find ourselves outside of marriage in the in the correct way which is that this is a till death union well at some point in the lives of, of married people one spouse may may die before the other. That could be really unusual for both of us to die in the same event. So commonly that's going to happen. And at that point, it is suitable for the Christian to stop and say, am I still bound and moving in the same way, in the same vocation in life? Do I have this desire still? Is it necessary or useful for me to be married? Or is this a time in life where now I am given to celibacy and not to marriage? And he's, re he's reiterating that as an option. If you're no longer in marriage, you're coming into this, this discussion of widows here in the next bit, this is an option for you. Celibacy is on the table. And I wish everybody was given this gift like I am. Not everybody is, but I wish everyone was. And so maybe you are one of those. Can consider that as we, as we hear then about the widows and how they ought to conduct themselves. Well, just take us right into that then. In verse 8, he brings up the unmarried and the widows and says it's, it's good to remain single, but if there's no self-control, go ahead and get married. Take us into those verses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, it, this, is, this is great stuff because it, it gives you both options. If it's not given to you, then don't do this. Not everybody is given to it. Celibacy is good. If it isn't given to you, then instead you ought to be married and you ought to be married in the normal way. And so that, that is the thing for, for widows and for, for the unmarried people. Again, just like we started off the discussion of marriage in the first place, it's, it is, it is good to be, it is good to be celibate, but if it isn't, if it isn't your gift, then here's the other way. And the other way is go be married. If you are, if you are alone because of your, of your spouse dying before you, and you're still given to this way in life, then let's find you a spouse. And I think that might be part of what he's saying there as far as instruction to pastors who are reading and hearing this and teaching their congregations. You have widows out there, pay attention to who they are. Some of them are going to be looking for spouses. You need to help them figure this out because there are men available to them and they may not find each other unless you give them a little nudge in the right direction that we can set these folks up and, and keep everybody in, in good and useful relationships instead of not good ones. Yeah, thinking about uh, the widows in particular, I think a, a text like this that upholds the, again, the goodness of being a widow and even receiving that as a gift from God is a helpful thing, certainly not the easiest thing in the world, because I'm sure you, as well as I, Pastor Casper, we, we both know many widows, and that's a difficult thing to receive from the Lord. There is a great sadness for widows and, and mourning, and there's many difficult crosses that they bear, and we as 
as the church should, should seek to support and uphold them in our prayers and in our deeds. And one of those ways I think that we can do that is by saying, God has given you something here. And now maybe not right at the moment of, of the husband's death by any means, but there is a place to so see. saying not necessarily the day of the funeral? Correct. Yes, Pastor Casper. <laughs> but but perhaps as as time goes on, to help, you know, so that so that we would all, as Paul will say later, uh, live together as the body of Christ. And some of some of us do so as those who are married, and some of those do so as those who are, are widows or, or widowers, and they remain a part of the body of Christ and have a vital role to play among us. Is maybe one way that we've sometimes neglected to support our widows and widowers, perhaps. Yeah, I think so. And that's yeah, that that's that is a useful thing for us to keep in mind that the that the gift of widowship goes along with the gift of celibacy. And that, that I think the 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 knee-jerk inclination is going to be to allow a certain period of time and then and this is probably a lot a lot more for the ladies in their lives than for us their pastors, but the give them a period of time to to mourn and then try to move them towards finding a, a spouse, which may not be suitable for, for all widows. In fact, a lot of them probably are, again, your experience and mine come into play here. Most of the widows I know are not looking to, to remarry. There are certainly a couple that probably are, but for the, for the most part, they're, they've found a level of contentment in the gift they've been given. Yeah. Well, and, and, and as Paul says, it is, it's, that can be a very good thing for those who are who are widows to remain unmarried. I guess my my call for us as Christians in this case would be to let's not forget our widows. Let's let's keep them in mind and support them in that place where God has given them to be at this moment, which is a difficult place, and to remind them of the goodness of God and the goodness of his gifts and to to help them see their continued place within the body of Christ. I think the more that we do that, the the better. And just to, you know, I I feel like we're seeing that more and more, Pastor Casper, and it's just something for us to keep in mind. Yeah. And the the, the centrality of the, the I'll I'll draw this to a, a much finer point, a more specific moment, the centrality of the midweek midday Bible study, which is predominantly populated by widows, that is that that's a, a very important function in their lives that is distinct from the way that other Christians engage with their church and engage with the body of Christ. That time to come and study, to a certain extent, that kind of, we can kind of think of that like the catechetical piece of the husband-wife relationship that's missing. Not having a, a, a catechist at home who is, who is the one teaching you the Christian faith, you come here and you get a little extra boost of, of instruction in this way at this time. That's not necessarily applicable in 100% of the case, but this is a thing, that there are extra things that are missing that they need in terms of the engagement, the the sociological engagement the church can give them, and this is one of those things. This is a place where the gals get get to gather together and interact with each other, and a lot of times that conversation turns towards what spouses were doing and were what they were like, and that's a a useful time for them to engage and, and console each other in a mutual way that that they may not always have readily available or the time to do at all times. And I guess this is the point that I would try to to bring us back to is that married or celibate, we are receiving a gift from the Lord. And 
as Paul will say later in this epistle, together, as both the married and the celibate, we are one body of Christ with these various gifts, seeking to receive them from thanks with thanksgiving from the Lord and living together as, as one church, supporting each other, upholding each other. Again, I know maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead of where he is right now in chapter 7. I, I think this is important for us to, to keep in mind, though, that we would live together, both married and celibate, in the church, supporting each other, pointing each other to to Christ and the salvation that, that he's won. So uh, plenty of things for us to, to keep in mind from this text and, uh, and to apply it in our lives as, as Christians. So let's, let's keep moving then, Pastor Casper. Paul's going to continue with more instruction. In verses 10 and 11, he addresses the married. He says, this is coming from the Lord himself. And I think what that means in this case is he's reminding us of, say, Matthew chapter 19, and is it Mark 10? I think it's Mark 10 is the parallel text, where the Lord speaks about divorce and remarriage. Talk to us about verses 10 and 11 here in 1 Corinthians 7. Yeah, the the, the marriage, the, the divorce thing is, is this is the one that's so difficult for us to talk about today because it's such a central part of our modern culture. There's not much latitude given for divorce in the scriptures. There's very little room for this. Jesus only gives the one the one exception. That's for That's for sexual immorality. That's the only thing. And Paul says, same thing, don't be divorced. This is not a good idea. This is not something we should do. And that is for Christians living right now, that is a that's a strong, difficult time for us to manage because we live in a society that doesn't think this way. Um, when you look at, at statistics on marriage and all the all the other malarkey that's floating around out there and, and how unsuccessful marriage is and how unlikely it is for marriages to succeed. The Christian faith is one of the central features that actually improves the odds for couples that are looking to get married. When when we have marriage in the right context with the right idea about what marriage is, that really improves and changes what it is. And we can see very clearly the distortions are almost always invariably a distortion of my desire and my happiness rather than your benefit and your happiness. And those that that shift in desire that changes what marriage is for if we're looking at divorce i think you're going to be hard pressed to find an example where my desire for my own happiness is not the driver behind what's leading us in this direction of divorce which is very different than what the scriptures tell us the scriptures tell us marriage is marriage is a sealed union between man and woman and there's only the one thing that's supposed to separate that that's that's when one of us dies of yeah. Of of a of, of an event that that is unforeseen, hmm. yeah. So in this case, Paul simply calls to mind the words of our Lord Jesus, who says, "What man is or what God has joined together, let not man separate." And he repeats that instruction for the Corinthians here: the wife shouldn't separate from her husband; the husband shouldn't divorce his wife. As he continues, then in verse twelve. He, he thinks of another situation, or perhaps another situation, that they've brought to his attention, not just to the married, but this in this case, one who's married to someone who's an unbeliever. And as he thinks through what he knows the Lord has said, there is no particular quote from the Lord that deals with this direct application, but as the Apostle of the Lord, he can speak to it, and so he does here. Uh, yeah. What does the apostles say under his apostolic authority concerning a Christian who is married to a non-Christian. Yeah, what, what great stuff that is, that he's, 
I think you were mentioning this before we talked today that there is there's a there's an idea that that uh, that Christians will just make things up and in the in the context of the first century church and slip them into the scriptures because then it gives the imprimatur on what we think we we want Jesus to say. Paul has a great opportunity to do this. He does not. In fact, he clearly says. This is not what Jesus taught. Here is a case that is not within the context. However, as an apostle of the Lord, he does speak to it, and he has he has good authority in the church. And this is this is how the Christian church continues to function when we talk about the use of the small catechism, which takes the example of Christ teaching the, the fifth commandment and the sixth commandment and expanding the, uh, the, the scope of them. Here, he is speaking to the case of divorce and how it should apply to the unbeliever. And he basically sets up the the parallel track, that the believer should not divorce the unbeliever because of their lack of belief, but if they're left, then let them go. And that's kind of the, the two options you have. You Because you are already married to someone who is an unbeliever, and, and we, we don't even really get the context of how this came to be. Did you Were you a Christian and then you married someone who was an unbeliever, or were, were you both unbelievers and one of you came to faith? Really doesn't matter all that much. The thing is, one is and one is not, and that's not adequate reason to dissolve this thing that God has put together. The Lord has still given you marriage, and it is still his gift to you, even though you're yoked in this way that, that is weird in the sense that one is a believer and the other is not a believer, and, and that still is good. And he starts to talk a little bit more later on, too, in this section about how the benefit of marriage which the the spouse being a believer and the and the other being an unbeliever, you don't know what effect you're going to have on your spouse. You don't know to what degree they may actually come to some change in 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 their understanding and they've come to faith themselves simply because they're married to you and have to struggle with dealing with the stupid Christian all the time. Oh, Pastor Casper. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're right. The the point the point here is you, you, dear Christian, live at peace so far as it depends on you. And within this marital union that you've been given, although your spouse is not a believer, you still are called to peace with this person. And so if this, if your spouse consents to live with you, continue to live with them, and who knows what the Lord may yet do through you. I, I do think it, it seems more likely in this case that you have two two people who were not Christians, and one comes to faith and one does not, because there are plenty of places in the Scriptures that would speak to the matter of a Christian seeking after marriage from a non-Christian as something that would not be advisable. So it does seem that that's sure. probably more likely the case here. But but as you said, well, but he, but he doesn't. He is, doesn't. He clearly doesn't exclude that. Yeah, and right. there's in the the lack of exclusion. I think and this comes into play here a little bit. The the lack of exclusion actually speaks to the, the context of how it came to be. It is possible we would tell when we're talking to kids, you're looking for kids, young people, you're looking for a spouse, find someone who's a Christian, find someone who's a Lutheran. If you find someone who's not a Lutheran, maybe try to work on making them a Lutheran before you get married. This is important stuff. He's speaking on, on the other side of that action. When you are married, if you made a foolish decision getting married, that's that doesn't change what happened. You are still right. married and this is still a thing God has put together. So That's yeah, more likely that two unbelievers, one comes to faith, but that doesn't exclude the other option because the other option is is still a thing that happens too. Yes, absolutely. That's a very good point, Pastor Casper. I, I do appreciate that. So the Lord, through the Apostle Paul, 
gives these instructions concerning marriage, and the apostle then continues to to broaden the conversation a little bit, not only to the matter of how this applies in marriage, which he will continue to kind of, uh, this will be the primary topic, but he going, I think he expands it a little bit more to the entirety of the Christian life and the vocations into which God has called us. So verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. And how does he begin to unpack that rule that he has for all the churches, Pastor Casper? Yeah, it's cool. He put he puts that within the within the framework of circumcision. Were you circumcised? Were you not circumcised? Don't look to wipe out the marks of of what you were. You are you were a Jew who became a Christian. Don't eradicate your 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 ethnicity from yourself. You're a Gentile who became a Christian. Be a Gentile Christian. These these this is this is suitable for you to do. And then the the place in life too. What was your vocation? He talks about slavery as as an example, and that's a that's a strong distinction in the ancient Near Eastern culture. But we can we can understand this in a broader sense in terms of what is your position in life? What is it you're to do? There is this sort of idea floating around that the only way to be a good Christian is to pursue church work, and we definitely want every Christian to consider church work as a vocation, and everyone who is inclined to go into it because we desperately need workers in the field. But ditch diggers are needed, and nurses are needed, and machinists are needed. And if your vocation is, is a machinist, you don't need to abandon your vocation simply because you are now a Christian or you have a more, a, a more intense sense of your Christianity today than you did yesterday, and therefore everything I'm doing is clearly wrong. I need to go do this other thing. You are still in your vocation and still serving your neighbor in a loving Christian way as that machinist who just spins out lots of really good widgets. That's the thing that a Christian does also in the same way that a Christian is a church worker, in the same way that a Christian writes poetry or whatever the thing is that you do. You're telling me I'm not holier because I host a radio show? Well, you are holier because you host a radio show. But for the rest of us, (laughs) just being pastors, that doesn't qualify us. That was the wrong Oh, wait, no, I mean, that's wrong. Yes, that's wrong. Oh, you're exactly right. I do think this is something that we see in this text, is the goodness of the vocations that God has given us. And what makes them holy is not how close it is to the the church sanctuary or to the the altar. Well, what makes it holy is the Word of God and, and who has given it. So in His Word, He gives marriage. And if you receive that gift with thanksgiving from His Word, that is a holy estate. And, and if you receive whatever it is that God has given in his word, you are living in a holy estate. And so Paul says, you know, don't, don't seek after your holiness in something else. Uh, be in that station where God has given you, uh, wherever you were called. Why? Because you, you were bought with a price. You, you belong to Christ, and that's what counts. So serve Christ as one whom he has purchased. Well, this is, this is Luther in the second article of the, the Creed, that I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom, and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. And that service happens in whatever vocation God has placed you, church worker or not. Yep, serving serving your neighbor in, in love and Christian contentment in, in all of the ways that he's given you to serve, in whatever the vocation is. It's all good and beneficial and useful for the kingdom. Um, and, and really, you know, there's even within the church, there are lots and lots of vocations of things that are varying levels of proximity to the, the altar or not. Because there's a person who wipes the floor under the altar. 
that's clearly a very important job. That's, that's something that has to be done too. Everyone has a function to serve in the kingdom and serving our neighbor. This is, this is one of those things, again, we sort of lose track of that. Part of our service to the kingdom of God is in our service to the world outside because one of the most important things that we gain is the wealth we bring into the sanctuary and present to the Lord because his, his, his ministry and service on earth requires finances to operate. We also have to have people that do that too. Otherwise, we're all going to spin out and run out of cash and we're not going to be able to keep the lights on and then we're really going to be in trouble because we can't do the thing that we're trying to accomplish. We need everyone in the body of Christ doing their vocation and doing their duty and serving their neighbor in love and, and, and to the benefit of all. That's the there function of the church. And the spread of the gospel is absolutely hinging on that. Yeah. And, and there we are back to where we were earlier in our conversation, that married or celibate, widowed or married, single or married, I mean, all of these various categories that we have, these are gifts to be received from God, and we use them together within this one church, particularly in my local congregation, to serve each other, to serve God, to serve the world. And, and it's all good gifts received by God, used in accordance with what he teaches in the scriptures concerning that goodness of, of marriage. What a, what a marvelous thing. Pastor Casper, got about a minute here. Help us to wrap things up on this text this morning. Yeah. Marriage is such a wonderful thing. Um, I love the way Paul teaches this to us, and our, our catechism gives us a great framework for this too. It's The Sixth Commandment is the one place where Luther treats everything a little differently. It's the one that is not, we should fear and love God so that we do not. There is no not in the Sixth Commandment. The Sixth Commandment is only expressed in the positive way. Do this, do this, this way. And so too, the way the, way, the, way the Apostle Paul presents marriage here. This is the right way that marriage ought to be done. You should engage in such a way that each man has a wife and each wife has a husband. Not every single one. Some are given to celibacy. Some are given to, to the gift of, of widowship later on, and celibacy might be part of that too. And this is these are all the ways that the Lord has blessed us with marriage. It's a good thing for us. We should receive it with joy. We should serve our spouse in joy. We should serve the church in joy. And all of this framework he's given us to our benefit. This is a wonderful gift of God. What good stuff he's given us. All the rest of it, everything else, is not a gift from God. Let's not even worry about those things. Pastor Jason M. Casper is pastor at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. He has been helping us today to study 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. Pastor Casper, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me again, Pastor Apple. It's always a treat. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called him. Married or celibate, united to husband and wife or widowed, However God has called you, dear Christian, live in the joy of the goodness of his gift. Serve him, serve your neighbor in that love that he has given you first. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about 1 Corinthians 7, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.